talk about this morning. So, I want to point out the second verse and the last verse that we sang. But as I ran, uh, no, no, sorry. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. My only boast is you. You see, as we've been working our way through our study in 1 Peter, Peter's been asking us to do some difficult things. And if we're honest with ourselves, we we would admit readily and confess quickly that the things that Peter asks us to do are really hard things to do, especially when, it cut, when he's talking about this submission stuff. Okay, very difficult stuff for us to do. And yet, as the song says, and as scripture has been teaching us, by God's grace, by God's strength, by his help, we can indeed do what we need to do in our service for the Lord. Um, he goes on and he talks about the fact that Jesus put himself on the cross for our sins. Why would he do that? Other than his grace and his mercy and his love. We're going to talk about that this morning as we look into 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to the end of chapter 3. So if you have your copy of the scriptures, go ahead and open with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Last week, our study reminded us that we need to do what is right no matter what. Okay? No matter what. We, no matter what the cost is, no matter what, how difficult it is, you and I need to do what is right. Why? Because that's what God has called us to do. God wants us to be obedient to his plan, to his calling in our lives. And so no matter what, we do what we know scripture commands us to do as we read it and as we study it. We come to an understanding from the pages of scripture what God expects from you and I. For, for Peter's beloved, the ones that he is writing to, he has just communicated to them what is right for them. And you know what? Can I tell you this? What was right for them in that day is also right for us because it comes from this book. And you know, we say around here, and I'm going to say it again, we say that this book is the authority for our faith and practice. We don't always get it right, okay? I'll admit that. But we strive to get it right. We strive to do what God calls us to do in the pages of his book. And if it was right for the readers of Peter's day, it's right for us today as well. Why? Because God has preserved his word down through the ages as the authority for those who follow him. As Christ followers, we need to be studying the word of God and applying it to our lives. And it's not easy. How many people would stand up now and say, man, this Christian life, it's so easy. Uh, You know, I don't have any problems. I don't have any struggles. There's no difficulties in the Christian life. It's just, you know, it's just easy peasy. Uh, Probably most people wouldn't do that. Because we know. And sometimes the struggles are because of ourselves and, and the things that we choose to do. Sometimes the struggles are forced upon us from outside. Nothing we can do to control them. But you know what? 
God has equipped us to live this life that he has called us to live. In chapter 2, Peter called us to submit to a lot of things that you know, we might not want to submit to. I was talking to Andy Giesman the other day, uh, I don't know if it was Friday or Saturday, talking about this whole topic of submission. And, and he agrees, it's not easy. But you know what? We're called to it. God says, this is what you must do, like it or not. And as we submit to the Holy Spirit's leading in our life, it becomes easier to do what God calls us to do. Following the command to submit to government, Peter begins to meddle a little bit, right? He talks about the home situation and how wives are to submit to husbands. Okay, pastor, there you go again. Why can't you just talk about that once and leave it? Well, because we need to put it into practice in our lives. And sometimes it's not easy for a wife to submit to her husband. And again, all of these things have the qualifier. If we're asked to sin by anybody in authority, we don't do that. That's where we draw the line. That's where we say, no, I'm sorry, I will not sin, even if you want me to, even if you force me to. But then there's the consequences that come along with that as we submit to, our Holy, to the Holy Spirit who convicts us of right and wrong. So he moves from telling wives to submit to husbands to talking about submission in the workplace. Actually, those two are flopped around there. Submission in the workplace. We, we need to submit to what our boss says. And again, unless they tell us to do something wrong, we don't want to do what is wrong. But if, they don't, if they've changed your, what, you know, what they hired you for and they change that a little bit, they redirect some focuses and stuff like that, you have to do that. Or you have to say, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I need to look for someplace else. But you're not to cause trouble. You're not to stir up problems in the workplace. You're to submit to those who are over you. And then he says, in case I forgot somebody, all of you submit. All of you submit to one another. In other words, we're supposed to look out for one another and the well-being of others in the body of Christ. And so this idea, and you might be wondering, are we ever going to get out of this submission idea, this submission mindset from Peter? Well, yes, we are. It's going to take a couple more weeks, though, before we move out of it. So this morning, we might be tempted to ask the question that two or three-year-olds ask often. You know what that question is, right? Yeah, I don't even have to say it. Why do I have to do that, Peter? It's not easy. Last week we talked about suffering when doing what is right. Who likes to suffer at all? Nobody likes that, right? And, and we even like it less when we suffer for doing what, what, what is right. If we're doing what we know we're supposed to do, if we're doing what is right and we suffer for it, boy, that's tough. That's hard. That's not something that we want to do. And Peter understands that. And he knew that we would ask, why, Peter? Why do you think that we should do that? And this morning, we're going to answer that question from the pages of Scripture. So would you stand together with me? We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Read from the screen, if you would. That way, we're reading all from the same translation. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering awaited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, 
but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heavens and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We ask for your wisdom as we look into the pages of Scripture this morning. We're thankful for your Holy Spirit who helps us have an understanding of what you have recorded for us in the pages of your Word. We ask, Lord, that as we look at this this morning, we'll study it out, we'll come to an understanding of it, and we'll put it into practice in our lives. Help us to live for you uh, with all the strength that we have to honor and glorify you and be used by you to bring others to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, did you get all of that stuff that we read? Can I tell you that sometimes you, as, a, as a preacher who preaches expositorily, there are passages of Scripture that you would like to skip? This is one of them. You can ask my wife. I struggled. I battled with this. Not because... I don't like what's said there. It's just, it's, it's very technical and it's, it's hard to sink your teeth in. And, and I like when I preach for people to be able to leave church with something to bite into and say, hey, this is what I can do in my service for the Lord. This is how I can change my life. This is how I can become more like Jesus. And that's in there, but there's some other stuff that kind of cloud the issue, the cloud, cloud the matter that as you're reading through, maybe you said, what in the world is that talking about? Where did that come from? Who in the world is Peter talking about in this text? I don't get it. Well, you're not alone. Uh, If you were to pick up the average commentary off the shelf, uh, most commentators would skip this passage of Scripture. And that's, that's not uncommon because when you find difficult passages of a scripture, if it's difficult for you to understand, you know what? It's difficult for them to understand and they just forget about it. They skip right over it. Move on to the next paragraph. Okay, there's a couple that like to handle the tough subjects and I appreciate them and I'll refer to some of them as we work our way through this text. But this is a text that has generated a lot of discussion down through the ages and we're not going to get bogged down in that this morning. We're not going to skip over, we're not going to gloss over it, but we're not going to get stuck in the, the muck and the mire of, of what other people say about it. I'm simply going to tell you this is what it says based on a, a, a literal interpretation of the text and then we'll move on from there. Okay, But this text should bring some encouragement to our hearts as well, it should bring some excitement to our hearts as well and so let's get started in First Peter chapter chapter 3, starting with verse 18. What we have here is, first of all, Christ, and, and, and try to contain yourself, okay? Don't get too excited when I tell you what this blank is, all right? It's Christ's victory over sin, His victory. In other words, because of what Christ did on the cross of Calvary, we have victory over sin. We are no longer in bondage to sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are victors through the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. When we're tempted to wonder why we should follow Peter's instructions, when we wonder if there is good reason to suffer for what is doing right, Peter cited here the sacrificial death of Christ as a motivational factor for those of us who follow Jesus. Now, there's a lot of people out there in the world today that do motivational speaking, right? You probably know that a lot of them don't really know what they're talking about. 
Now, I'm not volunteering to be a motivational speaker, okay? Because you really won't find that in the pages of Scripture. Because a motivational speaker, you know what they do? They focus on you. We're not called to focus on you or us or me individually. We're called to focus on Christ. And when, when, when it gets right down to it, most motivational speakers, it's more about the individual than it is about the individual submitting to Christ. You be you, you do you, 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 you. That's what you get from motivational speakers. When we look at God's word, we get you submit to the authority of Scripture. You submit to Jesus Christ. You submit to the Holy Spirit. You be what God wants you to be, not what you are. Because you know what we are? We're not so much. We think we're all that in a bag of chips, right? We're really not. We're, what does Isaiah say about our righteousness? All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Now, I'm not here to make you depressed. Okay? I'm actually here to encourage you, but not encourage you because of who you are, but to encourage you because of what Jesus has done in your life and who that makes you. Okay? That's why you need to be excited and encouraged about our text this morning. Let's start off with the idea of the victory that God gives us through Christ over sin. And as we think about this text where it says, For Christ also suffered once for sin. What we have here is the interminable sacrifice of Christ. You know, one of the popular things to talk about in politics today, well, it depends on what side of the fence you're on, but one of the popular things to talk about is this thing called term limits. Okay, how many people, I won't even ask you if you want term limits or not. Okay, but, but term limits is probably a good thing, which means you can only serve for so long, and then you've got to go back to life and do your job that you did whatever you did before you became a politician. Okay? It was never intended for politicians to be politicians for life, and that was never intended for that to be their job. But that's enough of that hobby horse, okay? Um, but, and I say that because this interminable sacrifice has no term limits. There's nothing that says that Jesus' sacrifice is only good for so long and then it expires. In fact, Peter says just the opposite. He calls it a once-for-all sacrifice. Jesus Christ suffered once for sin. And that once is an ongoing thing. It's not a once in, okay, that was the effect for, you know, like we have to get our car inspected every year. I drive into the inspection station and down there at Jack's and they inspect my car. They give me a sticker, they slap it on the window, and they say, you're done for the year. Next year, I have to go back and have it redone. Jesus never will have to be sacrificed again. It was a once for all sacrifice. This is a totally new concept for the Jewish people. They were used to making sacrifices for sin on a regular basis. They had to have a way to atone for their sins. And they were doing what God told them to do in the Old Testament. At their annual Passover feast, they made a sacrifice for the sins that they had committed. Here's a mind-blowing thought for you, okay? Um, and it, it really brings to light how effective or how significant the sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus was. At their annual Passover celebration, when Jesus was alive and serving and ministering and, and teaching people and getting ready to die on the cross, at that time, it was estimated that a quarter million sheep were sacrificed at Passover to atone for sin. 250,000 sheep sacrificed at the Passover feasts to atone for sin. 
Would you agree that that's a lot of sheep? So when Peter says, this is a once-for-all sacrifice, the Jewish people had to work through that. They had to try to figure out how in the world can this be? This is not something we understand because we sacrifice all the time. And by the way, that sheep that was sacrificed, it was not just any ordinary sheep. It had to be the cream of the crop. Had to be the best. It was not supposed to have any blemishes. That's a lot of sheep to be sacrificed. You know what the problem with the sacrificial lamb was in the Old Testament? What's that? Well, they ran out of lambs. No, they had a lot of lambs over there. Um, But the problem was it didn't work. All that the sacrifice that they did every year accomplished was to cover up their sins. It didn't wash them away. It didn't take care of the sin problem. It just covered it up. You know, uh, sometimes, well, every, every time we get ready to host the, uh, the annual conference for our state fellowship, which we're going to do again in 2023, you know what we do? We go buy paint, and we paint the walls, and we cover up whatever marks are on the walls. We cover it up. We don't take, we don't take them away. Because a lot of them, you can't just get a little sponge and wash it off the wall. It's a mark. Maybe it's a dent in the wall and we have to patch the hole. Uh, or it's, it's a black mark that you can scrub and scrub and scrub. And, and you're not, well, if you scrub enough, you might get the black mark off, but you're going to get the paint off as well. Okay? So you got you to cover up the blemish. That's all that a sacrifice does is it covers it up. Jesus' sacrifice didn't just cover up sin. It took away sin. It dealt completely with the sin problem. It granted forgiveness for the sin problem. It made reconciliation between lost man and a holy God possible. Here's a good explanation of why the sacrificial system for the Jews was not sufficient and and why something better was needed. The Levitical priests had to make sacrifices repeatedly. This demonstrates the inherent weakness of their sacrifices. Jesus made one sacrifice for all sins, for all people, for all time. One sacrifice for all people, for all time. Jesus did that. Jesus accomplished that. The the, the quote goes on to say... um, if they had an adequate, if the sacrifices had been adequate in themselves, they would not have been repeated. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away the sin of man. There needed to be a perfect, spotless lamb, and that was the Son of God. Remember the words of John the Baptist when he saw Jesus? Here comes the, son, the, 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 the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, he's taken away your sin, your past sin, your present sin, and your future sin. Now, that doesn't give you permission to just go out and sin willy-nilly. You you can't just go out and do anything you want. But God has taken care of this because your, your, your heart's been changed. You're no longer serving man and the desires of man. You're serving God and his desires, and his desires are always what is right. But we still sin. So we have the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who takes care of our sin as we confess it to him. So this interminable idea of a sacrifice is a never-ending, once-for-all sacrifice that deals with every sin, not just some sins. And then we have the imputable nature of the sacrifice. Boy, Pastor, you're using some big words. Well, that's 
you know, that's just what it is in the text, okay? Imputation. Peter says, the just for the unjust. Jesus is the just one, and mankind is the unjust one. Jesus took upon himself, himself my sins, and your sins, and the sins of mankind. He took our sins, and you know what he gave us in place of our sins? He gave us his righteousness. Hallelujah. We sang hallelujah for the cross. Yeah, Jesus took my filthiness, my rags, and gave me his righteousness. What a swap. That's like you driving around, oh, let's be reasonable, say maybe a 1995 beat up, rusted old car that's falling apart, and you know that when you go to get it inspected the next time, they're going to tell you, oh, the the frame is rusted out, and this is a problem, and that is a problem, and you're not going to be able to fix it, and you're not going to be able to get it back on the road. And then, let's say my friend Sean down at Jack says, but you know what? I'm going to give you a car off my lot. What kind of car do you want? Do you want an SUV? Do you want a four-wheel drive pickup truck? You, you, I'm just going to give you a vehicle. Wow. That's pretty nice of you, Sean, to do that. Uh, why would you do that? Well, because this car is not going to pass inspection. This car is junk. You need something more reliable. Jesus took our junk and gave us his perfection. What an amazing thought. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. We couldn't do anything to earn it, but he gave us his righteousness. This imputation is a doctrine that is taught throughout the New Testament. Even in the Old Testament, we find it introduced to us, but it was beyond their ability to understand because how can a sacrifice do that? didn't match their expectations. The imputable nature of the sacrifice. I get Jesus' goodness and grace and mercy and righteousness, and he takes all my bad stuff. That's why I get to go to heaven. Because who I am can't enter the gates. Has to be righteous in my place, and it's Christ's righteousness. Well, we also see that there was an intervention. Christ's intervention allows access to the Father. When we talk about an intervention, we talk about a total change, don't we? We, This ain't working. And whatever ain't working, we got to fix it. We got to make it right. And sometimes it takes a, a, a big change, a big intervention in life. Well, Jesus made an intervention for humanity, for mankind. Peter says that he might bring us to God. You know what? Before Jesus died on the cross and before the Holy Spirit begins to do a work in our lives, we don't want anything to do with God. We have no desire for the things of God. We're walking away from God. But then the Holy Spirit starts to do a work in our life. He starts to convict us. He starts to chide us. He starts to say, hey, you need to change. Well, I can't change. I've tried. As many times as I've tried, I've failed. I can't bring about a change. Well, The Holy Spirit begins to do a work in your heart and do a work in your life. And you hear the word of God proclaimed. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And your life then is changed. You become a new creature in Christ. The old things have passed away and all things are becoming new. 
This is the intervention that we're talking about. This is the intervention that we need. God breaks into our lives. We weren't looking for him. We weren't seeking him. Don't be confused. Don't be deceived by those who tell you there are people seeking after God because scripture says there's none that seeketh after God. There's none that doeth good. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to their own way. There there is not an individual outside of the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives that seeks after God. And God does, makes this intervention in our life. He brings us to God. How did he do that? Well, by being put to death in the flesh. Jesus was put to death on the cross of Calvary. He fulfilled the plan of God in eternity past when he hung on that cross. And when he took upon himself the sins of mankind. Some people will doubt the death of Jesus. They say, oh, you know, it was a near-death experience. He just fainted on the cross. And then when he got in the tomb, it was cool. He, he, he was revived and he came back to life. That's rubbish. He was dead on that cross. He gave up his life on the cross. How do we know that? Well, because the Roman soldiers were experts in death. They knew how to kill people. They knew when people were dead. The Roman soldiers came up and they got to the first thief on the cross. And they know what they did? They broke his legs. And there probably was one on each side. The one broke the one thief and the other guy broke the other thief's legs. And, and why did they do that? Well, in the whole thing of crucifixion, um, what happens is you have a hard time breathing. So there was a little, a little thing at the bottom of the cross where your feet could rest. And, and they would, everybody that got crucified, would eventually would find themselves pushing up on that stop at the bottom of the cross so they could keep breathing because as you were crucified, everything began to kind of just squish together and, and, and shut down. But if you could get your body fully extended, you could get another breath and you could keep doing that. So the Roman soldiers would come along and they would break the legs of people so they couldn't get fully extended and they couldn't get that breath and so they suffocated to death. That was the last thing that they did because that was the, the, the nail in the coffin, if you will. That's what allowed them to finally die. But when they got to Jesus, they looked at him and he was already dead. And why was that? Because he gave up his life. He said, it is finished. His life was finished. He was done. He was atoning for mankind. He was accomplishing the sacrifice that God intended for him to accomplish on the cross of Calvary. The Roman soldiers didn't break his legs. Instead, they took a spear and they thrust a spear into his side. And the scripture says blood and water came out together. Blood first and then the water. And that's another sign that the the person is definitely dead. Okay? Jesus didn't stay dead, though. Can I say that again? Jesus didn't stay dead. Amen. Hallelujah. He's alive today. Peter goes on to say, he was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And some translations will have that spirit capitalized. Some don't. But contextually fitting the the story that Peter is telling here, that's his spirit. That's not the Holy Spirit, okay? He was dead in the flesh, and then his spirit was revived. He came alive again. He defeated death. 
He went to the cross. He took our sins upon himself. He paid for the wages of sin. He died on the cross. And then he was made alive again. His spirit was revived. How do we know this is important? Well, it fulfills a promise that he made in John chapter, chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life. What's he say next after he says, I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Why? Because he's God. Jesus laid down his life voluntarily on the cross. He died. He stopped living. Now, wrap your mind around that if you can. God stopped living. Why? For me and for you, the just for the unjust. We preached a message not too long ago in First Peter. That's not fair. Sure wasn't that the just would die for the unjust. Just not fair. But that was God's plan. I lay my life down. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. You see, Jesus died so that he could bring us to God through his death. So Christ is indeed the victor on the cross. He brings victory over sin, over death, and over the consequences of sin. Verses 18, the second part of verse 18 through the first part of verse 20, this is where it gets a little difficult uh, to work through. Many through the ages have struggled to come to an understanding of what this text is saying. There's lots of explanations and there's lots of discussions about these verses. But the thing to remember is that there isn't an abundance of doctrine here that we have to come to terms with. It's just more information for us to process. Peter says, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. Can I, let me just tell you what this text is saying before we move on. We can't just skip over it because it's part of the text. So I'll break it down phrase by phrase for you, and then we'll, we'll, we'll move on. And again, like I said, there's not a lot of doctrine. Like, people like to pick at this text and cause division in the body of Christ. And there's no reason for that. There's no need for that. So we're just going to simply tell you, based on a literal historical interpretation of the text, what this means. It says here, by whom also he went and preached. The he here is, of course, Jesus. Peter is saying that Jesus went somewhere. Now, there's not, this is not a statement and should not be assumed that Jesus went to hell. Some people will say that. But that's not what the text is saying. It's saying he went somewhere. It doesn't tell us where he went. And you know what? If it doesn't tell us, it's not really that important where he went. But he went somewhere. The next, there's nothing in the text to substantiate that he went to hell. He can't go to hell because he's God. Okay? It's clear that God sent Jesus uh, to go wherever he went. But it's not clear what the location was. Peter also said that Jesus preached. Now, that's an interesting word. This is the Greek word kiruxo. It's not the word that we use to preach the gospel. 
It's the word that means to make a declaration. It's the word that um, means to proclaim or to herald something. It's not going to preach the good news of the gospel of peace like Paul talks about in Romans chapter 10. Instead, it is the word that says, hey, here comes somebody with an important announcement. Here's the announcement. You need to know what it is. It's a proclamation of victory. You know, at Christmas time, we sing this song called, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. What are they singing? They're heralding the truth about the birth of a Savior who has come to earth. They're preaching, if you will. Same word. All right? Heralding has the idea of making something known. It is the idea of pronouncing a victory. Today, we have Fox News. We have headline news. We have other cable TV news programs that pretty much tell us what's going on. You want to know who's winning the war in Ukraine? Check out the news. Be careful which news you check out, but check out the news. They'll proclaim to you what's happening in our world today. They'll make known what's happening Some are more factual than others, and not very many of them are factual at all, okay? But anyway, they're heralding the information. That is what Peter has in mind here. Jesus was declaring his victory over Satan on the cross. Wow. Jesus was shouting victory. It's kind of like being at a, a, can you imagine if you were, what was it, St. Peter's uh, that beat Kentucky? Number 15 playing against number two. What's the odds that number 15 seed is going to beat number two seed? Not very likely, okay? But at the end of the game, the number 15 seed won the game. Now, can you imagine the celebration of the fans of the number 15 seed to to move on to the next round? They were jumping up and down. They were yelling. They were saying, we won, we won, we're number one. We're going to go all the way. They might lose the next time. They might get blown out in the next round. But they won. And they wanted everybody to know that they won. Jesus is going somewhere to declare victory. And Peter tells us next who he's declaring victory to. To the spirits in prison. This is again where the controversy comes into play in this passage. Some would have us think that Jesus' spirit went to preach the gospel to pre-flood people that died, giving them a second chance to follow God. Why? There's no other place in Scripture where that's taught. You get a chance in this life, and you get many chances probably in this life, but once you've gone from this life to the next, it's done. It's over. You don't get a second chance to be right with God once you, once you pass from this life. So why would the text introduce something that does not match with anything else, biblically speaking, in the pages of Scripture? It doesn't. There's no chance to change your eternal destination once you've left this world. So make sure if you're here this morning and you haven't dealt with the problem of sin in your life, you do that today. Because you're not guaranteed tomorrow. This is what MacArthur says to explain the meaning of this text. I like it. I like how he explains it. He says, Christ went to proclaim his victory to the enemy by announcing his triumph over sin. That's throughout the scriptures, the fact that Christ triumphed over sin. He, he announces his triumph over sin, over hell, over demons, and over Satan. Oh, hallelujah. The powers of darkness had no control over us anymore. And Jesus went to 
preach that message, to proclaim that message, to herald that message to the spirits in prison. Who are the spirits? Well, they're most likely these spirits are not human. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, because of the word that was used for human or for spirit. If they were humans, Peter would have used a different Greek word. He chose to use the word pneumonasin instead of sukei. Sukei means a soul, a living being. He wasn't talking about living beings. He was talking about spirit beings. Who were they? Well, most likely they were the spirits, the demons that fell with Satan when he rebelled against God in heaven and God cast them down out of heaven. Revelation chapter 12 verse 9 says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, some of these angels were, are free and they act as Satan's messengers and demons and, and they persecute and they torment and they tempt to sin people in this world. But 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, some of those demons, because of the activity they were involved in, were bound in chains. Doesn't say where. Just says they were bound in chains. They were not free to roam about the earth because God said you don't have that opportunity. Just another reminder that God is even in control, has set boundaries for Satan and his minions. They can only go so far. And for those angels, God says, you're not going anywhere. He bound them and he placed them in prison. Remember that angels, whether they're good or bad, are not omniscient but they do know what's happening around them. I have a feeling, this is only conjecture, I can't substantiate it, but I have a feeling that these demons, these spirits, were celebrating the death of Jesus. All demons, Satan, everyone, every spirit being opposing God were celebrating the death of Jesus. Yes, we've won! Because they saw the here and the now. They saw what was happening when Jesus was on the cross and they took his body down and they put it in the tomb. They were celebrating. We have won a victory. (laughs) Jesus went and said, "Uh uh-uh. No victory for you. Here I am alive. You lost. You are doomed. Your fate is sealed. You got no hope. You will spend eternity in a place called hell, which was made for you and for your leader. Jesus declared victory. What a, what a sweet scenario that is. They have no hope because of their sinfulness. God, though, has for mankind a hope. No matter how bad the person is. We talked a little bit at the youth seminars about Nero the nut. And there's been a lot of people down through the ages who have been nearly as bad as Nero. We have a madman running around the world now trying to take things over that don't belong to him. He's evil. But you know what? God could save him. God could do a work in his heart God could do a work in his life and bring him to a saving understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished. Wouldn't that be amazing? 
Yeah, that, and we would say, man, that's crazy. That's crazy. Not crazy in a bad sense, but crazy in a good sense. That this guy confessed and trusted Jesus as his Savior. Man, if God can save him, he can save anybody. Well, can I tell you this? If God can save me or you, he can save anybody. But you see here, Jesus pronounced victory on the cross. He pronounced victory because of the cross. And he did that to those spirits, wherever they were. Their doom is sure. Perhaps um, Martin Luther, as he was dwelling on this, when he penned the words to the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He wrote these words, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. I love this part. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Who's going to pronounce that word? Jesus. Maybe that's just a little foreshadowing of what happened to these demons wherever they were incarcerated. And now he goes on to say, it's not, not just the one thing that they did that was wrong. Peter says, who were formerly disobedient. These angels committed some serious sin that Peter does not mention. Perhaps his readers were familiar with the sin because he does not go into detail about it. Perhaps, though, it's the sin described in Genesis chapter 6. We're not sure, so we're not going to conjecture. We're not going to guess about it. But suffice it to say, it was a grievous sin that they committed against God, and God judged them for it by confining them to chains. They deserve what they got. God is always fair. And he adds this phrase, when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. This is when it took place, the sin that they committed. This sinful activity, it's attached to the time of Noah, and it's attributed to wickedness, the wickedness of the day. Remember what it says in, in, in Noah? The wickedness, the sinfulness of the people of Noah's days was so bad that it grieved God in his heart that he made man. Everyone was seeking out their own things, doing what was right for themselves, not looking out for anybody else. This was an attempt by Satan to destroy the family unit as God had established it. There was such debauchery in those days. We haven't gotten there yet. We might be close, but we're not there yet. And I think when we get there, that's when God's going to take the next step. And, and come and take us home to be with him and bring judgment upon the world again, like he did then. Here's another explanation from MacArthur. He says, The Lord proclaimed his triumph over Satan, sin, death, and hell to the very worst of demons who disobeyed God in the worst manner in the days of Noah before the flood. The fallen angel's long effort to demonize people and hinder the redemptive work of God and prevent the seed of the woman from crushing Satan's head and sending the demons into the lake of fire was ultimately foiled on the cross. Again, can we say hallelujah for the cross? What a blessing. So that's the kind of the beginning of the confusion here in this text. We're going to move on to verse 21. And it says here, there's also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's nothing um, nasty in this text that makes it un, a little difficult to understand. But it are, because of the way we think, we kind of get confused in this verse. 
Okay? Some people have pointed to this verse and said, Ah, see, I told you you have to be baptized to be saved. Peter says so right here in the text. Well, that's not what he's saying. What do we see in this text? Well, first of all, let's notice this thing that we see in the text. We see the patience of God. It says, while the ark was being prepared. What was Noah doing while they were building the ark? You know what he was doing. Scripture is very clear. He was preaching repentance. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He was telling the people, hey, you can't live this way. God doesn't like it. You need to stop sinning and you need to turn to God. He was preaching repentance. He was calling people back to God. He wanted them to turn from their sinful ways and walk in a way that would, that would show that they were following after the ways of God. And God, during that time of the building of the ark, patiently waited for men to repent. But repentance never came. You might say to yourself today, man, I, I, I witness the people and I try to get people to understand they need to repent. It might not ever come. But it's not because you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. If you are doing that, it's because of the hardness of their hearts. It's because they don't want to hear and they don't want to repent. But God is still patient. Peter reminded us of this patience in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, where he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise to come as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with the roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. This is why we keep preaching. This is why we keep sharing Jesus with others. God's not done saving people. If you have unsaved friends, family, co-workers, keep preaching. Don't give up. God's not done saving. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, because we're still here. When, when the last one that God has called to be saved during the church age is saved, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised first. And those of us who are alive and remain, we shall be caught up. We shall be raptured. That's what that word is. Don't believe those who tell you there's no such thing as a rapture. We'll be caught up. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Hallelujah for the cross. Hallelujah. God will keep saving until the last person that needs to be saved is saved. What a great promise that we see in the patience of God. We see the provision of salvation in this verse as well. He says, in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. Peter points out the fact that on the earth at that time, only eight souls were saved. There were a lot more than eight souls. We don't know how many people, but the, the earth had grown, people had multiplied. There were a lot of people on the earth at that time. But only eight were saved. And here's the cool thing. They were saved just like you and I are saved. You say, what do you mean, pastor? Well, they were saved, first of all, through faith. You see, they believed in the revelation they had available to them at the time. What was that? They believed that if they built an ark, that God would save them in that ark. 
that God would bring them through the destruction that was raining down on the earth. That's what they believed. And so what did they do? They ordered their life accordingly. What did they specifically do? They built an ark. Now these guys never built an ark before. They didn't really know what they were doing. They were just following the directions that God gave them. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. And they kept preaching righteousness. So they were saved through faith. Here's that fly. It's gone. Um, They were saved through faith. They were also saved by grace. Genesis chapter 6 verse 8 says, But Noah found what? Grace in the eyes of the Lord. When Paul explained the means of salvation to the Ephesians, he wrote this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The people that were saved in Noah's day were saved the same way you and I are saved, through faith, by grace, believing that God is going to provide their provision. And then we have the proof of salvation. Verse 21 says, there's also an anti-type which now saves us. Hold on to your seats here. He says, baptism saves us. But he's quick to say, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. What an interesting verse we have here. This is a verse that some will look at and say, see, see, baptism is what saves us. Hold on. Let's discover what the text is saying. Let's talk about baptism for a minute. As Baptists, that's what we are, and we're not ashamed of that. As Baptists, we often focus on the ordinance of baptism. There's only two ordinances. What are they? Baptism and the Lord's Supper, okay? Those are the two ordinances. We often focus on the ordinance of baptism, and that's a good thing. And let me take a moment to encourage those who have not yet been baptized. What is baptism in a Baptist church? Baptism is uh, where you say, okay, I want to obey the command of God. Baptism, can I tell you this? Baptism is not an option. Baptism is a command that you as a follower of Christ, as a Christian, should be engaged in. You should say, yes, I want to submit. There's that word again. I want to submit and I want to be obedient to the command of Christ in my life. I want to be baptized. And can I tell you this? There's only one way to be baptized and it's not being you know, held in somebody's arms and sprinkling water on top of you. That doesn't work. That's not the baptism that we see in the pages of Scripture. Never was. Baptism, the word is baptizo, it means to be immersed. It means to be completely placed under the water. And that's necessary because of the picture that it portrays. The picture of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, taking my sins upon himself and dying. His life is now gone. He's placed in the tomb, like we're placed under the water. He's placed in the tomb, and then he rises again, like you rise again out from the water of baptism. Can I tell you this? I've never dropped anyone. So if that's a fear, you don't have to worry about it. And the amount of time that you're under the water is a couple of seconds. Hardly even get everything all wet. I baptized one guy, uh, 
and we were in a tank, and we had a, there was a glass side on the tank. Uh, and and it, a funny thing was, he'd been baptized before, but he needed to be baptized again. And so um, I said, now listen, just bend your knees, and I'll bat, you know. And so I start to put him under the water, and what does he do? He grabs a hold of the side of the tank. He didn't know that that was going to make things a lot more difficult for him. Okay? And I tell you about baptism because I know there's people here that haven't been baptized. And I'm not forcing you to be baptized. But I'm telling you, if you want to be obedient to the call of God in your life, that's your next step. If you're wondering why you haven't been effective in ministry, maybe it's because you haven't been baptized. Because God wants you to be obedient to that command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. I said all that to tell you that that's not what Peter's talking about in this text. I'm just encouraging you to do the next right thing as I have the opportunity to do it. Okay? Um, baptism that Peter's talking about here is, well, you tell me. I, just, I, I told you already, but I want to ask you a question. What does the word baptize mean? What does it mean? Immerse. It means to immerse. That's all it means. To completely put under. Okay? Don't then assume that we're talking about believers' baptism in this text. Because that's not what Peter's talking about. What Peter is saying is here that the people of Noah's day, they were immersed. (laughs) They were in a boat that was oftentimes completely under the water. They were also immersed in God's judgment upon the earth. There was no escaping it unless you were in the type that Peter says here, the anti-type, the ark, that saved them. God's provision saved them from the immersing destruction that God was raining down on the earth. They were, in a very real sense, being immersed in that destruction. You and I had been immersed in the destruction, the judgment of God that is going to come upon the earth, come upon all lost man, unless you have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Unless you've been baptized in the provision of God for the salvation of mankind. That's what he's saying. has nothing to do with believer's baptism. How do you know that, Pastor? Well, the very next phrase is in parentheses in our Bible. It says, not the removal of the filth of the flesh. In other words, the water that goes over your body that takes off dirt is not what I'm talking about, Peter says. Peter is speaking figuratively. He's saying that every believer is immersed in Jesus. Paul Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, in Christ. Every part of Christ has washed me clean. Jesus is our ark of safety. Like the boat Noah built was the ark of safety for his family. The ark protected Noah from divine judgment of mankind because of the grace from God. Jesus protects mankind, those who have trusted in him and his work on Calvary, from the judgment of Almighty God. There is no other way to escape the judgment of God. Just like there was no other way for people in Noah's day to escape other than getting in the ark. And you know what? Peter's very specific. Only eight people got in the ark. Only eight people were saved. Only those who obeyed God and got in the ark. Only those who obey God and trust Jesus, get, if we can use this phrase, get into Jesus, will be saved. 
New Testament commentary helps with this observation that says, God preserved them in the midst of judgment, which is what he also does for all those who trust in Christ. God's final judgment will bring fire and fury on the world, destroying the entire universe. You can read about that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. But the people of God will be protected and taken into the eternal new heavens and new earth. Hallelujah! Thank you, Jesus, for your goodness and for your grace. You see, Noah and his family sailed through the destruction of the world. That was proof when they walked out of the ark that they had been saved. And they repopulated the earth. Those immersed in Jesus are saved and preserved. The proof is that we are born again and we are used by God to bring others to new life in Christ. Well, let's close with this thought here. The power of the resurrection. But the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're getting ready to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. That's the culmination of the Easter weekend. Well, sort of. There's one other thing that we'll look at as well. And that's in verse 22. But you see, according to Peter, not only does Jesus, his resurrection provide us with eternal life or life in eternity in heaven, it also allows us to have a good conscience or a clear conscience. Remember what Peter said in verse 16 of this chapter? Peter was talking about having a clear conscience. He was talking about the result of being slandered even though we are doing right. So you and I, we keep doing right means that we have a good conscience. How can I keep doing right? I can only keep doing right if I am immersed in Jesus Christ. I can't do it in my own strength. Know this, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead makes it possible for you and I to keep doing right. Even when it's hard, even when it's difficult, even when people think you're crazy for doing it. But the power of God's resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, allows us to endure slander and keep doing right before God. And I misspoke. Now we're going to talk about the last point. Verse 22, Christ the victor reigns on high. What a great transition from Jesus suffering for the just for the unjust, suffering in an unfair way. Now Peter says, but it doesn't stop there. He is reigning on high who has gone into the heavens and who is at the right hand of God, the angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. What I just said, we're looking forward to celebrating Easter. On Friday night, one of our teens said to me, we were looking at the tomb and I was showing him the spotlight and all that kind of stuff. And he said, are we going to talk about the death of Jesus? Very excited question. Are we going to talk about the death of Jesus? I said, actually, we're going to talk about it on Sunday. He was excited. He was happy. He was, yes, that's, that's good. But you understand this, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus went to the tomb, Jesus rose rose again from the dead, but that's not where Easter stops. There's one other thing that happens. Jesus calls his disciples, his followers to him, and he tells them, he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth, go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, and, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We read that in Matthew chapter 28. In, Ma- in Acts chapter 1, we see that Jesus calls his same, probably a very similar time period. He says to the people, he says, you shall be witnesses to me first in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. And then what happens? 
He starts to ascend. And the people of Israel, the people of, I I love it. Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing into heaven? They were gobsmacked. They were like, what's going on? How's this happening? There There wasn't a marionette there. It was Jesus ascending into heaven. They saw him go. The angel says, just as you have seen him go into heaven, he will come again in like manner. Why did he go to heaven? He went to heaven to sit down at the right hand of the Father. Why? So that he could show and demonstrate that his work was finished. It was done. How do you know he sat down? Because Scripture tells us, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And again in chapter 10, the writer says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This fact is significant that he sat down because it says his work was done and that the Father was pleased and he allowed him to sit down in his presence at his right hand. John Piper points out four things, we'll end with this, of the significance of him sitting down. He says, this is it, he is the radiance of God's glory, so he sat down at God's right hand. He's the radiance of God's glory, that's why he could sit down. Second, he is the exact representation of God's nature, so he sat down at God's right hand. Thirdly, he upholds all things by the word of his power, so he sat down at God's right hand. And fourthly, he made purification for our sins. To God be the glory, great things he hath done. He sat down at the right hand of God his Father. You see, my friends, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension culminates in the fact that he reigns. He reigns on high. He reigns over angels. He reigns over authorities. He reigns over all powers. You know what? He is back where he belongs. I don't know if there's anybody in our church family that's rejoicing that Tom Brady is going back to the Buccaneers. I'm not. I don't care I mean, I wish he'd stay retired. But a lot of people are happy. They're rejoicing. He's back where he belongs. So what? That's what I say. So what? But you know what? Jesus is back where he belongs. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's in his rightful place. He's going to stay there until God says, Jesus, today's your wedding day. Go and get your bride. Woo! Passion. We ought to be passionate about that. He's coming back for us when God says so. He's not even worried about when it happens. He's just waiting for God to say, Jesus, go and get them. Bring them home where they belong. You and I will get to go to heaven and spend eternity there. To God be the glory. Thank you, God, for what you've done in this sinner's life. Man, that's exciting stuff. How great is our God? How great is our Savior? There's none greater. There's none better. He's the greatest. He's the great I am. Yeah, there's a lot in this passage of Scripture. And my goal this morning was not to cover every possible angle of the text, but rather to point out the ultimate example of our Savior. He's not only um, commanding us to submit to the authorities, but he's showing us how to do it. 
And he's showing us that when we're obedient to the will of the Father, great things can happen in our lives. He suffered unjustly. He didn't deserve what he went through, but he willingly endured in our place and on our behalf. Perhaps the great songwriter P.P. Bliss got it right when he said this, Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Say it with me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Heavenly Father, wow. This exciting stuff. All in the pages of Scripture. What a joy it is when we understand it from the perspective in which it was written. Father, we're blessed to be able to call Jesus Savior. And I do want to pray for anybody that's here this morning that might not know Jesus as their Savior, that today they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Today would be the day that they confess their sins and ask Jesus to become the one and only spotless lamb, the the sacrifice that makes a difference in the life of mankind. And Father, for those of us who know Jesus as our Savior, help us to be excited. Help us to be thankful. Help us to be grateful. Help us to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ben's going to come and sing a very, he's not going to sing.